1980s and 1990s, uh, every Saturday night, what would happen is that thousands of British families, they would sit down on their sofas and they would tune into the cult TV show Catchphrase. Maybe you remember it, Catchphrase with Roy Walker, I think it was. I think there was even an American spin-off version of the show. Now, if you've never seen Catchphrase before, Catchphrase was ostensibly just a guessing game, a straightforward guessing game. There would be a picture up on an electronic screen, but it would be a picture that was obscured by a number of tiles. Okay, and what happened? If the contestant got a question right... Then one of the tiles would be removed. They would maybe be shown the corner of a picture. And what did they have to guess? They had to look at it and try and guess what the whole picture was. Okay, I'm sure most of you remember catchphrase. Well, truth be told, catchphrase actually provides us with what is quite a good illustration of what we might call the Christology in the Gospel of Mark, the Christology in Mark's Gospel. I'm sure you already see what I mean, do you? See, for the people of Israel at the time, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that the identity of Jesus has been somewhat concealed, hasn't it? Like, how did Jesus begin his earthly ministry? He didn't begin standing up in Jerusalem declaring himself to be the Messiah. It wasn't like that, was it? Like, throughout Mark's gospel, what we've seen is Jesus resisting the temptation to say exactly who he is and say exactly what he's here for. There has been what theologians call the messianic secret of Mark's gospel. But I wonder if you see what happens in this portion of Scripture this morning. Do you pick up on it? This morning, a number of those tiles obscuring the picture of Jesus, they are removed. And as Jesus encounters some of this opposition in Jerusalem, what happens is that the people of Israel are actually given a greater insight into who this man is. In this portion of Scripture, the people of God are given insight, given hints into who Jesus really is. And so I would ask you, if you haven't already, to turn with me back to that portion of Scripture, to have Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, in front of you. And let's try and learn more about who this man is, who Jesus is. Now, I think... This morning, there are three things that we necessarily have to seek to draw out of this text. And I think I'll just give you those just now. First of all, in here, we see something of Jesus' status. We then see something of Jesus' sonship before lastly seeing something of Jesus' supremacy. So that's a kind of map or the agenda of what we're going to do for the next week while Jesus' status, his sonship, and then his supremacy. So let's kick it off with the first of those and let's notice what we are taught by God about Jesus' status in Mark chapter 11. Okay. Now, I'm sure you would agree with me if you've been here recently 
there seems to be something of a pattern developing in the way that Jesus acts at this point in Mark's gospel. Do you see what I mean by a pattern? It would seem that every evening, every night, Jesus seems to leave Jerusalem. And he seems to go and travel and stay in Bethany. I'm going to guess, guess that he stays at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house who stayed in Bethany. He goes there, stays every night in Bethany, and then every morning, what does he do? What's the pattern? Every morning, he gets up and he goes back into the city, goes back into Jerusalem. So you see that we've got this pattern developing at this point in the, the last week before the cross. This seems to be his pattern. Now, do you see where it is exactly he goes this morning when he comes back into Jerusalem? Do you see what it is in the text? Despite all of the chaos from yesterday, the chaos that we looked at last week, where does he go? He goes back into the temple courtyard. That actually, most likely, what you've got, the scene before you just now, is Jesus, and he is teaching a crowd in one of these long-covered colonnades that surrounded the court of the Gentiles. So you with me? Do you see the scene? This is Jesus teaching the crowd in one of these long-covered corridors. That's the scene. But what do we see Well, at this point, we see a group of men begin to stride towards Jesus. A delegation of what was called the Sanhedrin. We all know what the Sanhedrin is, don't we? It was the body in charge of the religious affairs in Jerusalem. And I think you and I have to get the atmosphere right here. It's crucial. Because see this body of men. They're not coming over to Jesus because they want to learn more about him, are they? Do you get the tone and the atmosphere? These guys are furious. I mean, they march up to Jesus and they angrily ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And if you're feeling generous this morning, maybe you see what they're getting at. Think about it like this. Imagine just, you know, a few moments ago at 11 o'clock, Imagine that I came out of this door through the back, you know, the usual practice. I'll go in here and we'll pray with the elders before the service. But can you imagine this morning I came out at 11 o'clock and I made my way through the choir stalls and I came up here and I found that somebody else was standing in my place. You know, that some guy, random guy had maybe just sort of wandered in off the street and he'd come up here and at 11 o'clock he began speaking to you and preaching. What, what am I going to think? What are we all going to think? We're going to think, who's this guy? You know, and, and what gives him the right to do that? Don't you see? That's what's happening at this point in Mark's gospel. Because what did I just say? Who's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin are the people in charge of the religious affairs in Jerusalem. And what has Jesus just done the day before? Without title? without official training as far as they're concerned, what's he done? He's marched into the temple itself and he's begun to turn everything on its head. Do you see the Sanhedrin? They're wondering, who's this guy think he is? Like what gives him the right to do this? Do you see? But I want you to understand that is only part of what's going on at this point. There's something much more sinister here. Because if you were here last Sunday morning, 
I spoke about a chilling phrase. I wonder if it has stuck with you. Jesus cleared the temple last week. You remember that, don't you? And we were told that the chief priests were there and they looked on. But what was the chilling phrase? That at that point, the chief priests, they sought to destroy him. Do you remember that? Now, do you see that that is actually what's taking place with this delegation? Because look at the second part of the question that they ask him in verse 28. They also ask him, who gave you this authority? Now, do you see why? Do you see what they're doing? Do you see why they're asking that question? They know that if Jesus says, well, actually, God has given me this authority, they know that at that point they will have grounds, sufficient grounds to arrest him and arrest him for blasphemy. So I'm asking you, do you see what this is with this delegation coming to Jesus? Do you see what it is? This is a trap. This is a wicked, conniving trick. These men are trying to trap our Lord. Now, don't you hate it when you ask someone a question and all you get is a question in response. Isn't that right? I am, <laughs> doesn't it drive you mad? I'm always saying that to my children, forever telling my children, you know, don't, don't answer a question with a question because you will drive everyone mad. Don't do it. Now you notice, I'm sure, in Mark's gospel that that is actually what Jesus does. Isn't he? These people come with a question about his authority, and he responds with a question. Now, you see that he is not being cheeky, of course, don't you? You see that this was a common practice amongst the rabbis, a common way of debating and discussion to respond with a question. But I want to say this to you. I want to underline this for you. That what Jesus says in response to their question is by far and away the most important element of this whole section of scripture. So how about this, friends? Let's all look at it together. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 30. So this delegation march up to him. They ask him about his authority. And look at the question. He responds... Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, we'll deal with the fact that he talks about John the Baptist in a moment. First thing you need to note is the reaction or the response of this delegation. Now, do you see from the response? This delegation are bewildered. And it's almost like they move away from Jesus. They get into themselves into a holy huddle. And I want to ask you as a congregation, do you see the problem that these men from the Sanhedrin have? Do you see the problem? These men, John the Baptist and Jesus, they were intrinsically linked, weren't they? I think if you know your Bible, you know that to be true. You think about Jesus' ministry began immediately after John's ministry, didn't it? And John the Baptist, he spoke so often about Jesus, do you see what I'm saying to you? Like the, in the public consciousness, these two men, Jesus and John the Baptist, John the Baptist, they were linked. So do you see the problem the Sanhedrin have? If they say John's authority was from heaven, 
that implies something really positive about Jesus. And the Sanhedrin, they, that's the last thing. They don't want to say anything positive about Jesus. But you see how the problem deepens. Because the Sanhedrin can't go the other way either, can they? Because what do we know? We know that the people of Israel loved John the Baptist. They really believed that John was a prophet of God. So do you see the problem? If the Sanhedrin go the other way and say, well, actually, John's authority was from earth, what is going to happen? This group of people, this gathering around them, they will turn on the Sanhedrin. This will threaten the power of the Sanhedrin. They can't do that. So what are they forced to do? Do you see what they do? They are forced by Jesus' question and forced to stand down. Now, let me ask you this, friends. Let me, let me do this. Let me turn this over to you as a congregation, friends. If somebody was to ask you, how would you answer this? What is the main point of this section of the story thus far? Would you say that, as so many people do, that this is really about the genius of Jesus? Would you say that that is the main point of the story here? Uh, the fact that Jesus is able to cleverly subdue this kind of trick, this trap, this onslaught? I would say all of that's true, but it's not the main point. Because listen, with reverence, I say to you just now, that I think here Jesus is playing catchphrase. Like I think at the point Jesus is using this conflict, and he's using it to remove a tile. Do you see? He's actually, for the benefit of the crowd, revealing something about who he is. Now, do you follow what I'm saying to you? Think about what's happened. He's been quizzed about his identity and he links himself to John the Baptist. Do you see what he's doing? For the benefit of the crowd, he's saying, you want to know who I am? You want to know about my authority? Think of John the Baptist's ministry. And you can almost see the crowd, they're scratching their heads thinking, well, what was John's ministry about? And then they get it. John spoke about one who was to come. John spoke about one greater than he. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see what he's using this conflict to do? He's saying to the crowd, I am that man. He's saying, I am actually the one greater than John. He's saying, I am actually the one more than John who derives all of my authority from God above. Do you see? And so in light of that, I have a question for you this morning, friends. In light of how Jesus is using this conflict, who do you think Jesus is? Give that some thought. Who do you think, who do you say Jesus is? Do you, like so many people today, think Jesus is just an interesting historical figure? Is that what you would say? Somebody kind of stands up from the crowd. Is that where you would go? Maybe it's more than that for you, is it? Maybe you would say, but Jesus is a spiritual man. Yes, Jesus is clearly somebody that God has used throughout his life. Is that what you would say? Would you say Jesus is just a moral guide? Somebody who says some interesting things about how we relate to people and how we live. Is that all you've got? Because do you not see from Mark 11, it is so much more than that. 
Do you not see from here that in Jesus we have one who is unlike any other person who has ever walked this earth? Do you see how we can see that? Friends, as he healed, as he forgave, as he cleared the temple, as he confronted the Sanhedrin, how did he do it? He did it all with the full and unmitigated authority of God himself. Friends, do you hear what I'm saying to you? In every single thing he did and said throughout his earthly ministry, here is a man who acted with the say-so of Yahweh above. So friend, do you want to know something of Jesus this morning? Is that why you're here? Well, I would urge you to do what he says in Mark 11, to do as he commands and to consider John's ministry because think about it. What happened when John buys Jesus? You want to know about his authority? You want to know about his identity? What happened when John baptized Jesus? The heavens Splitted too. A dove descended and the voice of the Father declared what? He declared, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you want to know who Jesus is? You want to know about his identity? Friends, here is a man with the full authority of God. We see something of Jesus' status. Next, let's note something of Jesus' sonship. Now, if you do have the Bible open in front of you, and if you look down, you will notice that at this very point, what happens is that you and I transition into a new chapter of Scripture. Isn't that right? This point here, what happens? Well, we move into chapter 12. So, uh, I wonder if the boys and girls would maybe answer this. You're going to listen to me. What usually happens when we move into a new chapter of the Bible, if it's a a gospel or a narrative like this, what normally happens? We move scene. Something changes usually when we move chapter, doesn't it? Like sometimes we move location. Isn't that right? The location changes. Maybe Jesus moves into a different town or a village. Isn't that right? Certainly, almost, he always moves audience. Isn't that right? And friends, you notice, don't you, that is not what happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We're told, Jesus then uh, began to speak to whom? Them. Who's the them? It's the same people. That in chapter 12, we have not moved at all. So you and I are still in this temple corridor. Jesus is still speaking to the crowd. The Sanhedrin delegation is still with us. But what does happen is that Jesus begins to tell a story at this point. And I think to to get this, uh, that we have to understand that at the time in Palestine, there was uh, an abundance of what you and I would probably call absentee landlords. That's... You get the idea, I'm sure. At the time in Palestine, there would be a lot of rich landowners that would rent out their land to other tenants. Now, here's the thing. What would they want in return? 
It's not like London, thankfully. It's not like London where landlords want every cent, every penny that you have in return. That's not how it worked in Palestine. In Palestine, the landlords would want a share of the crop. So have you got the picture? A farmer would rent out some of his land in exchange for some of the fruit of the land. And do you see that that is exactly what Jesus is saying in this story here? It is the story of a farmer who rents out what? A vineyard. And he rents out the vineyard to a group of tenants. At this stage, we're just like, well, that's fine. You know, like so far, there's, there's nothing particularly, you know, controversial about this story. Farmer renting out a vineyard. Eh, it sounds okay. But there is a twist in the tale. Because what happens? That group of tenants, they immediately turn against the farmer. Do you see that? The group of tenants, they begin to rebel. And what do they do? The farmer begins to send some of his men to the tenants to get his share of the crops. And what do the tenants do? They begin to beat these men. In fact, it's worse. They begin to humiliate the farmer's men. In fact, it's worse still. They begin to kill the farmer's men. And then the story ends. So what do we do? (laughs) Do we close our Bibles and think, right, that's fine, let's go home? No, we have a question to ask, don't we? Why is Jesus telling this story? What is this story about? As I look around uh, the congregation this morning, uh, despite the fact that it's Easter holidays and, and, and some of the congregation are away, I can look around and see largely familiar faces uh, that uh, most of you uh, were here last week with the odd exception uh, to the rule. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember that we looked at the withered fig tree. Do you remember that from last week, the fact that Jesus cursed this fig tree? Now, what did we say last week? What did we say a fig tree was? We said it was an emblem. Do you remember that? Like just like the Scottish thistle uh, or uh, the English rose, uh, that the fig tree was a national emblem of Israel. Do you remember we said that last week? Well, what we need to know for this is that Israel actually had another even more prominent national emblem. One that was used commonly to symbolize the land. So if it's not the fig tree, friends, what was that second more prominent national emblem of Israel? What was it? It was the vine. It was a vineyard. The justice we had in the first reading in Isaiah chapter 5, that a vineyard was often used by God to symbolize his people. Okay, now in light of that, do you see what the story is about? Do you see what it is that Jesus is doing in this parable? If it's about a vineyard, what is he doing? He's providing here an overview of the redemptive history of Israel. Isn't that what this parable is? This is a summary, an overview of the history of the people of God. Surely you see that. Who's the vineyard? Israel. Who? are the tenants. They are the religious leaders, aren't they? And who's the farmers? I think if I asked the boys and girls, they would know. Who's the farmer? The farmer in the story is 
It is God above. So do you see then the main point of this parable? Do you see the point of the story? Friends, this is a declaration of the coming judgment of God. A judgment not on the vineyard, you'll have noticed, not on Israel. But this is a judgment, a judgment on the tenants, the religious leaders themselves. So we see the point of the parable. There is a coming judgment on these Sanhedrin. But I do think there is something else here. And for this, friends, you're going to have to excuse me as I, I, I get somewhat personal with you this morning. I'd ask you to consider your life for a moment just now. You know, as your minister, I know that there are a number of people in the congregation just now who are struggling. And there's a number of people at LCPC just now who, who would just say they're unhappy. You know, people who are desperate to know the future and what God wants them to do and where he wants them to go next. People who are therefore just disillusioned at this point. People who are, who are struggling with pain and a lack of health. And I wonder then what you would say is your greatest need just now. Like I'd wonder what you would say if I was to ask you one on one, what is your most pressing need just now as a Christian? Now, I'll tell you what I think some of the answers would be. Like I think a lot of people would say, my greatest need is to know God's will for the next step of my life. And a lot of people might say, actually, Andy, money you know, to eke out a living in London and to get myself out of this financial hole, my greatest need is money. Some would say my greatest need is just better health because I'm really struggling. Some would say better jobs. Some would say to get me out of the city. I really can stand up in front of you this morning and I can say to every single one of you, none of those, none of those. That for every single one of us in here, your greatest need is to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your greatest need at this point in your life is to know more of his identity, to know more of his love, to know more of his purpose, to be reminded of just who he is. And so because of that, friends, I can delight as your minister in saying that that is actually what God confronts you with. In Mark chapter 12. Because you need to think about the big picture of this story. The Sanhedrin come to him with a question about authority. What does Jesus do? He tells him the story. Do you see the claim he is making in the story? I mean, I'm asking you this. Like, who is it that the farmer sends to these wicked tenants? Who does he send to his vineyard? You go, oh, how would you answer that? Would you say to me, he sent a servant? He does, and then he sends another servant, and he does, and he sends another servant. Who does he send in the end? And look at verse 6, if you don't see it, who does he send? The farmer sends his one, you'll notice, his beloved, you'll notice, he sends his son. And I'm asking you, do you see what you've got in front of you? This here is one of the clearest claims of divine sonship you've had in the Gospel of Mark this far. You understand it? Here you have Jesus claiming to be God's only son. 
And you may be saying to me, but it's veiled and it's hidden. It's only just part of a story. But it's clear. And it's so clear that those Sanhedrin delegates, they saw it. They saw it as a claim of divine sonship. They would use it in a trial against Jesus. He's claiming to be God's own son. And I worry as the minister here. I worry that we do not ponder that aspect of Jesus' nature nearly enough. And we don't ponder the fact that he's more than a prophet, more than just John, more than just authoritative. We don't ponder enough. He is God's son. He is of God himself. Do you understand that that everything that we can say of God the Father can be said of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's equal with the Father. Listen, he is not eternally subordinate to the Father. He is not a created being. He is not lesser in any way. He is equal with the Father in might, in power, in dignity, in authority, in holiness, and perfection. And when you consider that exalted nature of Jesus, Isn't what you are told in this story marvellous? Because I ask you, what does the Son do? For the Father. For his vineyard. What does he do? Knowing full well what lay ahead. He goes to those wicked tenants, doesn't he? And he faces a cruel, horrendous and unjust death. Doesn't he? Do you see what confronts you in Mark chapter 11? You are shown grace. You are shown mercy. But you are shown grace and mercy of the very Son of Almighty God. So we see the status of Jesus. We see the sonship of Jesus. And in just a word, we see also the supremacy of Jesus. There is, I think, nothing more uh, thought-provoking than the sight of something that has died. There is nothing more poignant, is there, than the sight of something that has passed away. Even as a kid... I could see that. You know, I remember as a child walking home from school uh, one afternoon by myself, walking home, and I saw just a blackbird dead at the side of the road. And I remember stopping and looking at this for ages and just thinking, really, death seems so final. It seems so lasting. And isn't that how things seem for the son in the parable that Jesus tells? Now, consider how the parable ends. The son, he goes to the tenants, and what do they do? They put him to death. And that's how the story ends, isn't it? The parable ends with the son dead in the ground, as far as the readers uh, and the hearers are concerned, this Jesus, he's come to the vineyard, and they recognize that, but what's going to happen? He's prophesying his own death. I'd say he's going to die, and that's going to be it. Is that the case, though? Well, I, 
ask you to consider how Jesus concludes this conflict narrative with the Sanhedrin. Would you look at verse 10 and see what he does? Really, Jesus, uh, he quotes uh, Psalm 118. We sang this psalm last week. He quotes Psalm 118. And he, do you notice what he does? He compares himself not just to a stone that the builders, who are the religious leaders in Jerusalem, not just a stone that will be rejected. What is the other thing he says? He compares himself to a stone. What's the word? What is the word? The stone that becomes the cornerstone. We hear that word all the time in the church, don't we? We we sit, we sang the word last week. We know that word, the cornerstone. If we plant a church, <laughs> nine times out of ten, it's either going to be called Hope Church, maybe Grace Church, but probably it's going to be called Cornerstone Church. See, we, we know this word, cornerstone. What does it mean? Well, as always at LCPC, the, the ants found in the TV show, uh, Grand Designs, uh, I'm sure you've all seen Grand Designs before. And so you know what often happens in Grand Designs, don't you? Uh, a couple will take on, they'll uh, do this big building project, won't they? They'll build themselves a mansion. But at the end, what do they want? Very often they want a memento from this building project. So they'll put a big stone up high above their front door. And it'll be a stone that they will date. Or it's a stone that they will initial, it's a stone that they will decorate to draw the eye of all those who are approaching their, their house, isn't it? Do you see that this is what Jesus Christ is saying of himself in Mark chapter 12? Listen to me, friends. That yes, here he speaks of his death. He speaks of the fact that he will be executed by the Sanhedrin. But here, he is speaking of the future that lay ahead. And do you see what he's saying in the psalm? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that I will rise and rise to become the cornerstone of Israel. That this, this Lord, that he would rise to be decorated in resurrection glory. That he would rise to a a place of prominence in his vineyard. That yes, he would die an awful and brutal death. But friends, he would rise to reclaim his father's land and reclaim it in his father's name. And so I end with this. For you, if you are a professing born-again believer this morning, Friends, would you take what God has shown you in Mark 11 and 12 and take it into your devotional life this week? Would you see first your desperate need to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would you then not just read and not just pray, but do so with an awareness of who this Jesus is? I mean, this week, meditate upon, ponder, and worship Jesus Christ as the authoritative, as the supreme, sovereign, risen Son. And then, for those who are not Christians here this morning, can I urge you 
quite simply not to be like this delegation from the Sanhedrin. See, you have done what they have done today. They, as you have done in this church service, they, that delegation, have come to Jesus. They, as you have done, they have seen something of his identity. But how does that delegation leave the scene? They leave it all the more resolute in their opposition to Christ. And I would urge you, friend, not to do that this morning. Because you see this great game of catchphrase that we're talking about this morning. One day, that is going to come to an end. One day, that is going to finish. One day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, Every eye will see exactly who he is. And they will see with clarity what he has done. On that day, it will be too late for you. While you have time just now, would you not come to Jesus Christ? Would you not see this morning who he is? That he is the only saviour of sinners. Would you not come? Would you not worship? Would you not submit yourself to the eternal Son of God, the one who has died, but the one who is risen and risen for his vineyard? Let's pray.